Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, as we continue our study through the Ten Commandments. We finished the first table of the law, the first four commandments, which focus really on loving God. And now, starting last week, we started looking at the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10, about loving our neighbors. We began last week by looking at the fifth commandment, the most important and, well, maybe not the most important, but the most foundational verses for loving our neighbors, which is to honor your father and your mother. Today, we come to the sixth commandment, and that's in verse 13, right there in your Bibles. You shall not murder. That's it. That's it. That's the entire sixth commandment. In the Hebrew, the command is even shorter than what we have in the English. It's just two words. No murder. Now, of all the commands, this seems perhaps the most obvious. Probably the least debated of the commandments. Instinctively, we all know that murder is wrong. No controversy here. But have you ever wondered why murder would be wrong? Sure, everyone assumes that it is, but why? Why does every human being seem to have a, almost a, a judicial system within their hearts that says no murder? I mean, most people seem okay with a lion taking down a gazelle in the wild. But we're not okay with a human taking another human's life. Some attempt to answer this question in a purely naturalistic way. For example, in the journal New Scientist, Michael Ruse and Edward Wilson, they argue that our morality or understanding of right and wrong and why we don't murder... Why murder is inappropriate is because of an evolutionary adaptation. We don't murder because it's not advantageous to us and our reproductive ends. I mean, if we go around murdering everyone whenever we want, then it would just be chaos in our society. So the rightness and wrongness of murder, they would argue, is an illusion an evolutionary adaptation. Of course, this begs another question. Who gets to decide whether your life is worth saving? I mean, maybe you kind of being blinked out would be best for the world. Why are you worth protecting? Well, Dr. Peter Singer, who is a professor of of ethics at Princeton University, he writes this. Can we justify attributing value to all human lives? And he goes down through a series of possibilities, and he concludes, if one has the cognitive capacity scoring highly enough on a graded scale, then one may be recognized as equally morally valid and valuable as a human being. The implications of that perspective, they're staggering. 
It means that those who are cognitively impaired, whether it's a result of a congenital condition or a degenerative disease or because of an accident or injury, ought not to be regarded as intrinsically valuable. Interestingly, Singer's own mother had Alzheimer's disease. So he's pouring all this money into helping her through Alzheimer's disease. She has impaired cognitive functions. And so when somebody asked, her about, asked him about the inconsistency of what he's doing, his, he responded, she might not be alive today if he were solely responsible for her care. That's like pretty chilling stuff. But I think there is a better answer. The reason why mor- morality, the reason why it seems hardwired into our brains, hardwired into our nature to understand that murder is wrong is because there is a, a, a divine lawgiver. It is because all those things are, pointing, are telling us, pointing us that there is really a God. And specifically, Christianity says that there is inherent worth and dignity in every single human being because we are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, God creates man and woman in his image. Genesis 9, 5, God says murder is wrong because we are made in his image. Human life belongs to God and it is therefore sacred. No man can take it without his permission. So men and women, boys and girls, all have inherent worth and value. Yes, marred by the fall, but nevertheless still present. Everyone is to be treated with dignity because they are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter what race they're from. It doesn't matter what religion they're from. It doesn't matter how they voted. It doesn't, matter. it doesn't matter if they're living a lifestyle that is in complete rebellion against God. They are still made in the image of God. It is only biblical Christianity, I believe, that allows for the sixth commandment to be based on something much more than just good practical advice. And so as we examine this commandment this morning, I want us to ask ourselves three questions concerning this commandment. Number one, let's get some clarity here. What is the meaning of the commandment? Number two, what are the implications of the commandment? And number three, what is the heart of the commandment? What is the heart of the commandment? So let's start with the meaning. What is the meaning of the commandment? Meaning of the sixth commandment. Simply put, it forbids the unlawful killing of a human being. An unlawful killing of a human being. Murder is a translation that we have in our Bibles, and it's a good one. The word here in the Hebrew is ratzach, and it's a very specific term. It doesn't refer to generic killing. That's another word in the Hebrew. It's almost always used to describe intentional, premeditated homicide. It is used in the context of planned murder, assassination, voluntary, and also involuntary manslaughter. So what does this command mean specifically? Well, it doesn't mean 
that God prohibits self-defense. If you turn the chapter over to Exodus 22, verse 2, it says, If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So in other words, if someone is breaking in, seeking to kill you or your family member, and there is no help available, it is right for you to ward off that attack by force if necessary. Now, before we go out and purchase the Glock or a shotgun, before we shoot first, ask questions later, it's significant to see what Exodus says. Exodus permits this defensive killing when? Only when the sun has not risen. The idea here is that if the sun's out, you can see what's happening. There's, there's no cover of darkness. You could perhaps call for help. So there might be a less lethal solution. Simply put, you shouldn't use more force than necessary in a given situation. But self-defense is not a violation of the Sixth Commandment. What's more, capital punishment or the death sentence doesn't violate the Sixth Commandment. It would be strange if it did because the Mosaic law actually includes the death penalty later on in, in, in the law. So the death penalty, when justly administered by the governing authorities, is a lawful form of killing. Now, why is that? If you turn back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. It says this, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. In other words, capital punishment for murder is not considered it is, is, uh, is not considered an assault on the image of God, but a defense of his image. Human life is so precious to God that God says, if you take another person's life, if you murder them, then you forfeit your own. The New Testament doesn't repeal the death penalty. Paul affirms it in Acts 25, 11, And in Romans 13, he says, about the governing authorities, God, that they are God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't problems in our country with our justice system, in every country and their justice system. I'm not even making the argument here that capital punishment is great because it's, a, and it's an effective and cost-effective deterrent. That's not what it's about here. This is not that. Capital punishment is not perfect justice. But it is part of the process by which God brings his judgments to bear on a sinful world and does not violate the Sixth Commandment. One more thing. The Sixth Commandment also does not violate... Uh, war does not violate the Sixth Commandment. War doesn't violate the Sixth Commandment. Again, 
it would seem odd if it did because, you know, just earlier in a couple chapters, earlier in Exodus, Exodus 17, Israel waged war. And they're going to be told to wage war as they go into the land, into the promised land. Scripture recognizes that warfare is sometimes necessary in a fallen world. As we've seen, Paul says God has given the sword to the civil magistrates in Romans 13 for the defense of the country it might be necessary. So should we lament war? Absolutely. Should we yearn for peace? Yes, absolutely. Yet we must also be grateful for military action that secures both peace and order. So the sixth commandment does not prohibit the sort of killing that's self-defense, capital punishment, and war. What the command does prohibit is any act of violence against an individual out of hatred, anger, or personal gain. It prohibits you from taking a life unless God has given us that authority, and that authority must be sanctioned under the word of God. Positively, this command tells us to exercise extreme care when it comes to life. We are accountable directly or indirectly to those who bear the image of God. We are to preserve life. We are to honor life. We are to respect life, uphold life. We are pro-life Samaritans. We, would, we ought not to be the type of people that walk across on the other side of the street when someone's life is in danger. We're called to a radical commitment for the overall welfare of our neighbor because they are made in the image of God. It summons us to the sacrificial pursuit of the well-being, the highest good for our neighbors in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what this law is really about. John Calvin put it this way. If we find anything of use in saving our neighbor's lives, faithfully to employ it. If there's anything that makes for their peace, to see to it. If anything harmful, to ward it off. If they are in any danger, to lend a helping hand. So what is the meaning of the commandment? But simply, uphold the sanctity of life. Uphold the sanctity of life and do not take it from another wrongly. Second question that we have this morning. What are the implications of the command? What are the implications of the commandment? Certainly, don't be a murderer. Care about life. But what are some of the implications for us today? First, the sixth commandment prohibits suicide. And I know that this is This topic is very painful for those who have experienced it with family and friends. I've been involved with those who have attempted it. I've received phone calls in the middle of the night from families trying to pick up the pieces from it. But let me be clear that suicide is self-murder. It is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. 
I don't think a person's last sin determines whether or not he's born again. God looks at the whole of our lives. He looks at everything in our lives. The all are evidences of whether we belong to him. And that's how he will assess us, not because of one failure alone. I think that the darkness of depression, the desire to escape pain and the feelings of worthlessness or hopelessness can in that moment blind a person to the hope of the gospel and they may take their own lives. But I think we are right to see that in suicide, as tragic as it is, it is a morally culpable and blameworthy choice. There are five instances recorded in Scripture about it. Abimelech, Saul, Ahithophel, Zimri, and Judas. All of them in the context of shame, defeat. When noble Bible characters in Scripture who experience such frustrations ask God, take my life, when Moses says this, when Elijah says this, when Jonah says this, God not only didn't grant their request, but the implication is that those requests were ungodly. So let me be very clear. Self-murder is serious. We are playing with fire if we are contemplating it. It is spiritually and eternally serious to murder yourself. It is not a light thing. And therefore, if there's anyone who is listening right now and you're thinking about it, hear me when I say don't do it because there is another way. I promise you in the name of Jesus Christ, there is another way. I know that's not what your feelings are telling you. But your feelings are not telling you the truth. They're deceiving you. What's true is that God will always make another way for you. He always makes another way. God will never lead you into a situation where violating his commandments is the only option. So I plead with you to wait for him to speak with somebody because the Bible is very serious about murder and your life is precious to God. It is, even if you think that it's pointless. Another implication. <clears throat> the sixth commandment prohibits abortion, the killing of a child before it's been born. Christians have always believed that an unborn child is a person made in the very likeness of God. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In other words, a child in the womb is a living human being who has a relationship with God and with his mother, and to kill a child in the womb is sin. As a pastor, I've, I've sat with families uh, who learned that their pregnancy is not going to come to full term. I visited with families with the news that their newborn would only but live a few hours. 
And I've grieved with families over a miscarriage. And my wife and I have known that pain ourselves. And in every case, our tears tell us what we already know, that this is not a potential human being, but a precious child. I know that the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, people, and sometimes Christians, didn't even know what to think about it. They said, what about this and what about that? What about the person that has to drive 100 miles to have a therapeutic abortion? What about the woman who has to save the baby to save her own life or save her own life? I heard people saying, I don't know how I feel about this. I need to hear from a woman's perspective. Well, look, I'm not trying to promote any political agenda here. That's not my, that's not my grind. That's not my axe to grind right here. I understand that issues surrounding abortions are complex. I understand that causes of rape are terrible things. I can't begin to imagine what it would mean to bear a child that would always remind you of such a tragic experience. But we must not kill a child for the sins of his father. So this is not about a po- politics. This is, this is what the word says. Abortion is sin. And the Bible has no room for any other consideration. And we should always rejoice when life can be preserved. Again, abortion is not the unforgivable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. I remember walking with a friend who felt so guilty about it, felt that she needed to be punished. She felt that she could not show up, her, she, her, that she could not show up at church because no one would accept her. And when she finally invited me to speak, I said, yes. You should be punished, but you won't be because Jesus took the punishment for you. We all have sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And church, well, that's the place for sinners, isn't it? And yet, this is the place where all those who have been washed and sanctified and justified by the blood of Christ, this is where we come. One last implication before we move on to our last point. The sixth commandment calls on us to respect life, to cherish and protect it. And I think it prohibits us from keeping our mouths closed. Sure, with our mouths, we may stand for all sorts of life-giving truths. But sometimes we are afraid to speak truths that lead to eternal life. A study in 2019 reports that nearly half of all self-professed Christian millennials believe it's wrong to share their faith with close friends and family members of different beliefs. I'm sure you've, you're in this boat with me here. Because how many conversations have we had with a friend? How many countless hours have we spent with a friend, laughing with them, crying with them? Yet we haven't gone around to telling them about Sin and eternity and Christ. 
We know they will not escape the judgment of God. We know they will face an eternal death. And yet we know also the joy of the gospel. We know that there is life everlasting in Christ. And yet we say nothing. Spurgeon spoke of what he called a minister's unwillingness to tell the whole truth. He calls that soul murder. He writes this in the way that Spurgeon does. Ho, ho, sir, surgeon. You are too delicate to tell the man he is ill. You hope to heal the sick without their knowing it. You therefore flatter them, and what happens? They laugh at you. They dance upon their own graves, and at last they die. Your delicacy is cruelty. Your flatteries are poisons. You are a murderer. Shall we keep men in a fool's paradise? Shall we lull them into soft slumber from which they will awake in hell? Are we to become helpers of their damnation by our smooth speeches? In the name of God, we will not. Church, let us not be accomplices in the deaths, death of their souls. Know that our silent mouths are also not the unforgivable sin. Where we have been unfaithful, Where our our sin of people-pleasing and indifference abound, grace abounds all the more. So let us repent. Let us rise up and let us sin no more. We must protect life and rightly oppose things like suicide or euthanasia or abortion or whatever it might be. But even more, let us be life-giving agents and proclaim the excellencies of Christ. That others may have life. And have it abundantly. Well, this morning we've asked ourselves two questions concerning the sixth commandment. What is its meaning? What are some implications? Third, and finally, what is the heart of the commandment? What is the heart of the commandment? Like the rest of God's law, the sixth commandment is a lot harder to keep than it seems. Our temptation is to say, the sixth commandment, that's the one I have kept because I'm not a murderer. I haven't murdered anyone. And so all we have to do is turn to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Next Sunday evening, not, this, not tonight, but the week after, we're going to get a short exposition through that. Michael's going to lead us in that. But here we are, Matthew 5, 21. Follow along with me, and we'll read verse 21 all the way down to verse 26. Or verse, let's just stop at verse 24. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And Jesus is telling us that the reaches of the sixth commandment extend to the secret hostilities of the heart. Because at the root of murder 
is a heart of anger. At the root of murder is a heart of anger. The Heidelberg Catechism says it this way about the Sixth Commandment. I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, gestures, and much less by deeds. So instead of being one of the easiest commands to keep, you shall not murder, actually it's one of the hardest to keep. Because even if we never murder, even if we, we aren't involved in murder in any way, we can often dishonor one another with our words and with our thoughts. Wrapped up in murder are things like resentment and bitterness, grudges. Oh, those grudges. But those are the kinds of homicides that we are involved in all the time. Have you ever whispered about another person's reputation behind their back? Insulted someone under your breath? Made a racist remark? A sexist remark? Have you ever thought someone was an idiot? They're a fool. Every time I'm driving, it seems like there are, all of them are all around me. It only reveals that there's murder in our hearts. From the time you are a toddler and you got angry because your parents told you no. Or your siblings took one of your toys so you hit them. You have committed murder in your heart. Now, anger is not necessarily a sin because the Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. There is a place for righteous anger. But let's not kid ourselves. That's not often the case, is it? Righteous anger has at its heart, what? The glory of God. Righteous anger at its heart is always controlled. It is never flying off the handle. But our anger is not like that. Our anger is held on to. We rehearse it. We savor it like little morsels we would just eat up all the time. We hold these grudges against one another. And that's our culture. It's full of it, isn't it? That's what our world is all about. In fact, these days, our world's figured out a way to make money off of our anger. A recent article in The Atlantic calls these profiteers anger merchants. Daytime talk show hosts air brawls on live television or whatever it is to the delight of viewers. News networks that fuel moral indignation. Social media platforms that happily reward rants with likes and shares. You know, political outrage. It's chic. Us versus them. If they're not with us, they're what? They're worthless. Worthless? And all of that has bled into the church. Sometimes we think it's okay to have division within the church. I don't know why we think that it's okay. We think, hey, you know, I don't really like that person. I'm just going to ignore them. And we never consider the possibility that it's even our own attitudes, our own heart attitudes that have, that, that, and our heated words that have contributed to all this division. We feel slighted from someone at church. We just think, I don't need you anymore. Church, the Apostle John says, in the, says this in 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that anger is so serious that you should not only eliminate it in your heart, but also do what you can to prevent and alleviate it in others and seek reconciliation. First, be reconciled. In other words, the sixth commandment isn't just saying stop murdering people and even prohibiting murder of the heart. It says positively seek reconciliation. So, beloved brothers and sisters, it may be that you have business to do before the throne of God this morning because you have violated the sixth commandment. Be reconciled, church. Be reconciled. I mean, leave it to Jesus to take one commandment that we might feel pretty good about to reveal our hearts of sin. Because which one of us haven't unrighteously been angry this week? Which one, one of us haven't spoken to our spouses with anger? Or spoken to our children in anger? Or spoken to our parents in anger? Which one of us haven't silently judged others? The problem is that the Bible explicitly excludes murderers from the kingdom of God. Those guilty of enmity, strife, anger, envy will not inherit the kingdom of God. It says in Galatians 5.20, so if we commit murder and we all have, yes, you have, I have. How shall we deal with breaking the sixth commandment? How shall we escape the wrath to come? Well, God has made a way in the death of his son, Jesus Christ. The one who had never broke the sixth commandment. The one who was murdered to set angry murderers like us free. We who have broken the sixth commandment, what must we do? We must go to the cross. Because at the cross, there is mercy for murderers. There is pardon for you in Jesus Christ. Won't you come to the cross today again or perhaps even for the very first time today? Seek the cleansing that only he can give you. Ask for murder. Um, Ask for mercy. (laughs) You murderer. Acknowledge the depravity of your heart. Seek him. Save a life this morning, perhaps your own, by trusting in him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, oh, when we look at simple commandments that are just a word or two, how much pride swells in our hearts in believing somehow. I have kept these all since my youth. But the reality is that our hearts have been far from you. And we have not these, kept these commandments in faith. But we know, Lord, And we have great hope because of the gospel. And we ask that it would be the gospel and the transforming work of the gospel in our hearts that would cause us to have that thing that is so hard for us to do, which is to love people, to love our neighbors, 
to look beyond loving our nuclear family. We know that that is made possible only by the work of the Spirit within our hearts. And so we plead for that work to happen, to fall here upon our church at Redeemer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.